we've now come to the conclusion that there are four remaining populations on Earth. The best thing to do is to preserve the habitat intact. Hi, I'm Melanie Walker and this is Grounded. If gardening is your passion, this is the place to be to find out about what's happening in the gardening world. Hi, and welcome to another podcast with me, Melanie Walker. Yes, it's a place that you can find out about things all environmental and green and gardening, of course. Today, we're taking a little bit of a, a sidetrack from just talking about gardening and plants. Um, although we are speaking to somebody who is probably one of the most clued up people I know about plants, but I think that he wears his heart on his ecological sleeve a lot of the time. I'm talking to one of the assistant curators from the Walter Sisulu National Botanical Gardens, and that would be... Andrew Hankey, thanks for coming and joining me. Thanks, Melanie. Now, we've been uh, talking over the years about all the various things that are going on. First of all, I mean, for people who don't know who you are, and uh, I mean, anybody who's into this kind of industry would know exactly who you are. Give me a bit of your background. Uh, Melanie, I was uh, the the, uh, horticulturist at the Walter Sisulu Botanical Garden. I started there in 1993, Mm. and the garden was only 11 years old. So we've done a lot of development of the garden itself. And I've been there ever since. So that's it. You that's found it. your niche and you're happy. And I'm happy there, yeah. I'm like part of the furniture. Okay, so what, was the, what were the botanical gardens like when you arrived there? Because I know, as you said, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happened. If, yes. Every time I go there, there's something new that's been happening. So what was there before? Well, when I started there, it was quite different. There, was, uh, there were quite a lot of buildings which were still left over from when it was a farm. Mm-hmm. That have subsequently been knocked down. You'll remember the restaurant, mm-hmm. the old restaurant that was uh, an old farmhouse. There was also an old environmental education center that was also knocked down. We've built all those features the succulent garden, the geological garden, the psychiatric garden, uh, the new restaurant, and so on. Mm-hmm. We, now, we've just recently built the new Sisulu Circle. Yes, well. I hadn't seen that before, and I was through there a couple of weeks ago, and it was so fantastic to suddenly see, oh, there's something new here. I mean, I've, I've really had a lot of fun wandering around, and I've been going out to the gardens for probably at least 20 years and it's a nice place to go and hang out have a picnic and of course you know just enjoy the environment and i think one of the biggest draw cards of course is everybody going to the waterfall yes of course the waterfall and the eagles they're always the one thing that everybody sees most people when they come to the garden they'll visit this section or that section the arboretum the sassel dam maybe the bird and butterfly garden but one thing that everybody has in common they all go to the waterfall and they all look for the eagles Okay, so now this is all part of Sanby, okay, um, the, all of the various uh, botanical gardens around the country. How does Sanby actually oversee what is happening there? Okay, well, Sanby's got 10 national botanical gardens. There are a lot more botanical gardens in South Africa, mm. but there's the network of 10 national botanical gardens. And those national botanical gardens are all under Sanby, and they only grow exclusively South African plants. And we also do other work behind the scenes. So for, we do plant conservation work, mm. research work, restoration, species restoration, seed banking, and so on. So other activities that, that the public don't see also gets done behind the scenes. And the one thing that people say when they go out there and they come walking past and they go, oh my gosh, they're irrigating everything. <laughs> and everybody, like, we're all, this is a water-stressed country. How on earth are the botanical yes, gardens yes. managing to keep their plants looking good and this, that, and the other? And yes. Where are they getting the water? Why are they using so much water from? But uh, yes. I know that where you are, you've come up with a, a very 
good way of making sure that everything works properly, apart from the fact, of course, you've got the waterfall and the river coming through yes. there. So we do have the natural river running through the property, and obviously that's a, that's a huge uh, advantage for mm. us. But on the same note, like you said, we are a water-stressed country, and we all have to be responsible with water use. It doesn't matter where it comes from or how much you're paying for it. We still have to be responsible with it. So with all the water in the botanical garden comes from the waterfall. Mm. There's, a, there's a, a collection point near the top of the waterfall. We take it across on the contour line into a reservoir, which is near the office. And from the office, it's all gravity-fed down into the garden. So mm. there's no pumps. The whole botanical garden is irrigated with, without any pumps. And that is essentially the saving grace because it's a, a self-imposed water restriction. Mm -hmm. Because you're irrigating with gravity pressure, as soon as there's too many sprinklers open, the pressure drops off and you, can't, you just can't use anymore. So I can imagine that there must be fights because, I mean, each gardener has their own section. I'm That's sure they correct. must be fighting about, no, it's my time of day, my turn today to have my section watered. That's correct. And so you have this, this um, uh, bartering or trading, heckling between the, 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 the gardeners saying, but wait a minute, you, you were irrigating the whole morning. I need to irrigate now and you've got too many sprinklers on. Mm. You've got to close two in order for me to open two. Mm. So it's this natural self-imposed system. I mean, we could install pumps and that would resolve all the problems. But, you know, a, a, couple, of my, a couple of years ago, about three years ago, we went through a, uh, a problem in that our pipe uh, was, was broken. Mm -hmm. our, our inlet pipe was broken. And because of the government procurement process, which can be quite uh, uh, challenging, it took us 11 weeks mm. to get it repaired, which meant that we were without water for 11 weeks. But then how do you keep everything going? But well, Although, I mean, you know, most of the plants, as you said, are indigenous, indigenous endemic. Yes. And not, not only not necessarily endemic, but indigenous certainly to South Africa. Mm. So obviously the plants, they can handle natural drought stress. And after 11 weeks, the gardens were looking pretty stressed, but they were still there. All they needed was a bit of watering and they all perked up again. Now, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, for those of us who are into geocaching, and which I am, um, I've been out there to go and do the caches and there's a wonderful multi-cache at the Black Eagle Fall. Because of course, there are black eagles that are actually staying at the top of the falls, aren't they? That's right. Resident breeding pair. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've been up and down that entire place. There's a few that I haven't done around on the longer walks. Yes. Because when it's hot, you don't you know, have children with you. They're not going to go and do it. But, I mean, it, it's really a great place to go and visit. I'm, one of my favorites, of course, has to be the Ohot Forest. Yes. yes. And then there's the Sassel Bird Hide. And, I mean, just the bird life that is there and the, the sense of peace. I mean, you would never believe that you're actually kind of in the middle of a, a large city. Joburg, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the other parts that have come? There's a new one, um, which well, is the People's... People's the people's plants garden. Plants garden. Yeah. The, the people's plants garden. What we really do is we we sh it's in a, in a normal botanical garden they probably would have called it a herb garden. Mm -hmm. It's plants that are used by people, not only African people, South African people, Europeans, but South African plants. Mm -hmm. So whether it's used for food, uh, dye, fiber, magic, ritual, spiritual. Uh, medicine, whatever, we, we display it in that garden. So all the plants in that garden are, uh, have some use by people. Yeah, I, mean, I know ran, running around and thinking, oh, look at that big bush of mpempo. And I'm going to use that. I'm going to dry it and then use it as a smudge stick because yes. that's one of the things that, uh, which, which, not Artemisia, it's the yeah, helichrysum. Yes. And I mean, that gets used to kind of commune with the ancestors. And there's so many wonderful stories about all of those plants that are in that garden as well. Is it 100% indigenous plants? I mean, what happened to the plants that were there when the farm was there? 
Well, there was an avenue of jacarandas, for example. Mm-hmm. There were two rather large silk floss trees, Jurassia. Mm-hmm. I think they're called Seba now. When the garden first started uh, in 1982, it was closed to the public for the first uh, six years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it was obviously before my time. And they went through the garden at that point in time and they basically did a, a ritual cleansing, or what do you call it, ethnic cleansing, and they cleared out all the exotics. I like that, an ethnic cleansing <laughs> on trees. <laughs> the objective of the botanical garden at that time was to have an indigenous botanical garden. Mm. So the first six years were spent converting it from a farm into a botanical garden. It was then open uh, once a week or only on weekends, and then slowly more and more until now it's open seven days a week. Was it left by the family who owned the farm for that particular purpose or was it just identified and then somebody said, like, we're going to make this into a botanical garden? No, actually it wasn't It wasn't left by the family. The uh, city council of Rudapurt at that stage decided that they needed the waterfall mm-hmm. to be in public hands. They didn't want the waterfall to be in private hands and maybe end up one day as a casino or as a resort or a private estate where the public couldn't have access. Mm-hmm. So they purchased the property from the farmer who had lived there since the 1940s. And they then approached the National Botanical Gardens. At that stage it was called National Botanical Gardens. Mm-hmm. We now call it Sandby. And they, they approached them and said, you know, we've got the site wouldn't you like to create a botanical garden? It just so happened that the Professor Rycroft at the time, the the director of the NBG, was looking for a site in the Johannesburg, Pretoria area. Mm. And they were looking at several sites and they visited several sites, but they settled on that one. It's a good one to have settled on. But now, of course, you know, the the thing about keeping it in public hands has become a bit of a problem up at the top of the falls and on the ridges in the area with uh, a whole bunch of developers wanting to get their greedy mitts on it and go and put 3,000 units Yes, that's residential. A, that's a big uh, challenge that we're faced with at the moment. And there's a community group called the PCA, the Procedural Conservation Association, that was formed by the community to oppose this particular housing application. Mm. The housing application that you speak of, 3,000 units, was uh, a joint venture between the city council and a developer. And we went through the whole EIA process. And you see, the, the, the one, one of the big problems, not only is the fact that you have these beautiful protea wooded grasslands mm. on those slopes, um, but we also have the critically endangered Albertina Sisulu orchid, which occurs there. And in 2007, we rediscovered the orchid. It hadn't been seen in Gauteng since 1956. So it's, it's, it was, it's exceedingly rare. And we started to do some research onto this, into the species. We found that it was historically known from 16 locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, 11 of those were in Gauteng. So the, the, the core of its distribution was in Gauteng. And in 2010, we embarked on a on a, a field trip around Gauteng for a whole week with various other bodies, the Red Listing Department, the Millennium Seed Bank, the Gauteng Nature Conservation mm-hmm. and Susulu Garden staff. And we went around looking for the old historical localities that were documented and we couldn't find any with, well, most of them were now converted to highways and byways and shopping malls. And those that where the, where the grasslands are still intact we couldn't find any plants. We then started to expand our search into the neighboring provinces because it was also there were a few records from Pumalanga and Limpopo. And we've now come to the conclusion that there are four remaining populations on Earth. Three of them have less than 10 plants. 
And the Krugersdorp population, which is the population adjacent to the botanical garden, has 137 plants. Mm. So it's clearly the most viable population as far as conservation is concerned. Because to conserve a population of 10 plants, obviously you could potentially be facing huge genetic problems going forward. Whereas, you know, on the Kruger's door population, you've got intact habitat. Mm -hmm. And of course, these, these uh, species are very dependent on the habitat that supports them. You can't take them out of the habitat and expect them to survive, mm -hmm. especially long term. So the best thing to do is to preserve the habitat intact because the habitat supports them. And in the same habitat, you've got the breeding pair of black eagles. Mm. It's their hunting ground. You've got endangered mountain reedbuck, which are breeding on that ridge as well. We've also got other, we've got hedgehogs, which are near threatened species. We've got a couple of other small plants that are red listed as well. But then surely government should really get involved and say, excuse me, sorry, no, you shall not pass. You cannot build here. This is an area which needs to be actually declared. No buildings to be coming up on here. We, we need to. This is the last chance we have yeah. to actually keep this sacrosanct. So what is the problem? Why is there this backwards and forwards going on with the developers? Well, the, 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 there are rules and regulations and guidelines in place and le legislation to protect our environment. Mm. Um, the, 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 the problem is that we are faced with a, a process we have to go through, and that process is an environmental impact assessment. They did the environmental impact assessment. The provincial nature conservation said no. HOD came back and gave a negative, outright negative mm. decision. It's on a ridge. It's in a critically endangered ecosystem. It's an endangered vegetation type. It's mm. Uh, the layers of protection are just on top, one on top of the other. And the HOD took all that into consideration, said, no, we, will not, we don't want development in, on these ridges, and uh, they, should be re they should be retained. Mm. They then appealed the decision to the MEC, and the MEC overruled and allowed development to proceed. So the PCA that mm. I was telling you about, they filed a court review application in the High Court and that well, that's still waiting to be heard. I just think the MEC should be put over somebody's knee and given a sound spanking for that one, quite frankly. That's just not cool. I'm just interested to know, I mean, do we have these same problems when it comes to developing of, of sacrosanct areas all through the country or is it kind of just something which has become a greed in Gauteng kind of thing? Because I know down in the Cape, I mean, there's no ways anybody would be allowed to do anything that was going to stop and or stomp all over somebody else's plant. Especially the fane boss. Yeah, no, don't mess with the fane boss. No, that's just like an absolute no-no. But I mean, seriously, you know, the Cape Town people seem to be a little bit more, oh, should we say, on point when it comes to actually making sure that we're protecting our natural resources. Melanie, I think the general population in Cape Town are more aware because they're sitting on, basically, well, they are sitting on the richest floristic kingdom in the world. Mm. So there's more species diversity there than anywhere in the world. They are more aware of that. And that has been promoted more and more. there is more awareness. However, there are still legal processes that one has to go through. And the legal processes are the same because we're in, under the same legislation in terms of the uh, national legislation. There's the environmental impact assessment process, which mm. needs, to go th needs to be um, completed before development can proceed. I think that 
the, the problem is not by any means endemic to karting. All the millennials should know about all of this and start getting offended about stuff. I remember, gosh, it was back in the late 80s when there was that whole thing about wanting to strip mine for titanium down at St. Lucia. That's right. Yes. And at that stage, I mean, I was working with the Democratic Party, as it was then, going down to Parliament the whole time because I was kind of involved with Dr. John Ledger and saying, right, we are not going to let you. And, and it took absolutely ages to convince people, yes, sure, there may be all these amazing wealth underneath the dunes and everything, but you're yes. not touching them. Yes. But yes. there is now apparently encroachment again. They're, they're trying to get into that little area somewhere close by the St. Lucia. It's I've, I've heard that there is uh, pressure again. And, and, and continually, I remember what you're talking about, and uh, those dune forests that they, in those years, they had won awards for their mm. rehabilitation programs. The environmentalists were saying, no matter how good your environmental program is, you cannot replace an 800-year-old tree. Yeah. Absolutely. June forest. So how do we get people involved in actually saying, right, enough is enough, we are not going to stand for it? I mean, apart from putting out a petition or maybe asking for funds, what, what do you see as being a great way of getting the population involved and saying no? I mean, there's been all these things in the news where the people have turned around and said, we're not going to stand for that. Yes. And getting various companies to overturn yes. various things that they've done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we won't mention those. But um, I mean, how else can we get people to care about the future of our country? Melanie, it's very difficult these days. You know, we, we initially you would think that with the advent of the internet and, and social awareness and social media, things would become easier. Mm. And it certainly has become easier for you and me, especially probably me. You, you are in the media. But uh, for the average person in, in to create awareness for a particular subject, it, it ha there are more channels open. Mm. But everybody's competing on those channels. So the competition is so much greater. Mm. What we've done, when I say we, the, the uh, PCA, together with other partner organizations such as the Black Eagle Project, the Botanical Society, they've come together and they formed a coalition. Mm -hmm. And that coalition, their first project is now to look at fundraising campaign in order to raise funds to protect the entire ridge system. Yeah. So they're not saying, well, let's protect the eagles or let's protect the orchid. They're saying, let's protect the entire ridge system mm. and everything in the ridge system will look after itself. Fortunately, it is right there by the botanical gardens. And I mean, I, I just love walking around there and thinking it's so nice to come to a place like this, which is almost pristine. Yes, yes. we know that it isn't actually. Yes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of trees that have been there for many, many years that were allowed to be there. And I like using that word, were allowed to have them there <laughs> because they're not, they're not eight-landers. But um, I mean, one of the, the, the newest things that you put in is, of course, well, it's not a new thing that you put in, but the grassland is becoming quite a, a feature of the gardens as well, because, I mean, the grasslands here in Joburg are also being absolutely decimated. Decimated. So, and, and, and Johannesburg in particular, the, the, the huge area between Johannesburg and Pretoria is a, a large granite dome, mm -hmm. which is uh, responsible for the rolling hills of, of, of the northern suburbs. That is a, a, a very rare vegetation type. It occurs only in that Johannesburg area and nowhere else. Mm -hmm. It's called Igoli granite grassland. And it is being decimated, as you can imagine, at a tremendous rate. That which wasn't already historically decimated for agriculture mm. is now being uh, targeted for everything, mostly Factories. urbanization. Yeah, mm. and that's very sad because I mean the grassland is also like a huge biodiversity hotspot, isn't tremendous, it? Tremendous, tremendous. Second only in in diverse species diversity to the fynbos. So we've got two of the biggest in the world, yes, and we yes. should be looking after these yes. things. This tremendous, the, the grasslands in South Africa, it's a large area, the interior 
um, high-lying areas on the eastern side of South Africa are covered with grassland. Unfortunately, or fortunately, they are also home to good deep soils, high rainfall, mm. so they're well suited to both agriculture and silviculture, mm. um, which has caused us to lose a lot of our grasslands already, and a lot of our grasslands are very conservation uh, in need of conservation. Mm. So uh, I think if the figures, I think there's about 60% of our grasslands have already been transformed. Now, if you look at America, they have a similar situation uh, where their grasslands have been almost 90% transformed, and they have very little left of their original pristine prairies. That they, they call them prairies, yeah. we call them felt. But uh, a lot of our felt, in South, and, and unfortunately, because we grow up with it, it's uh, we don't value it. No, you know? I remember growing up just when there was um, nothing at the end of the El Coro shopping centre in Northcliffe. Yes, it yes. was dirt roads and felt, and I mean yes. that's how I spent my life was that's in the right. felt, and it was fantastic. Yeah. But that's not the only thing. I mean, so many of our plants are coming under attack. I mean, I know that a few years back at uh, Walter Sisulu. People broke in at night and stole how many cycads? Out of one flower bed, we lost about 50 cycads. And you're having to rebuild that as well? Well, we don't buy cycads mm. uh, for the botanical garden. They're either donated mm -hmm. by the public, members of the public, or they are Grown confiscated. Oh, confiscated. You're not growing them. Well, we grow them from seed as well. Mm. But when I say we don't buy cycads, we don't acquire cycads other than those two methods, yeah. um, donation and confiscation. So the police or the nature conservation uh, confiscate plants and then they, they, leave, they deposit them with us for safekeeping until the outcome of the court case. Once the court case is concluded, if the plants are awarded to the state, then the Botanical Gardens takes ownership of those plants. Well, this is the problem when something becomes so famous and everybody, oh, I've got to have one of those. It's like I have to have a Krugerrand. I need to have an encephalitis. Yes. And so, of course, I mean, people will go to all kinds of lengths to go and get grey market, shall we call them that, instead of green market ones. Yes, yes. And that's why the Mojaji rainforest is having so many of their cycads stolen from there. Um, so, I mean, for me, I'm always saying, do not buy from the side of the road. Yes. Now, the, the first question everybody says, what's the difference between cycas and cycad? Um, it's kind of like the difference between a cat and a pet. Okay. All, pet, all cats are pets, but not all pets are cats. <laughs> <laughs> not all cats are pets. I don't think the cats would agree with the fact that you're calling them pets. There's not, that's definitely not going to happen. So cycas is a type of cycad. Yeah. We have many different types of cycads, and cycas is one type. And encephalitis is another. Encephalitis is another. That is our, our, our indigenous or our African cycads yeah. are all encephalitis. But I mean, you told me a while ago about a very interesting because we all know we have to have now um, licenses for permits, them. They have to be permits right. and all of this. But if you want to transport them, you have to have a transport permit for That's every correct. single every single province. And if you want to take them out of this province into the next province, you have to have an import and export uh, export and import permit. So if you want to go from Limpopo to Cape Town, you'll have to have import and export permits for in and out every province you trans you uh, travel through. And if you're flying them as well. I th I'm not sure about that. <laughs> oh, that's one of those things. But I mean, this is a, is a problem. I mean, I, I, I was saying to you, I mean, the, I had heard at one stage that the um, blue squill, the Silamet yes. natalensis, which right. is being used for muti quite a lot, that's might right. they were thinking at one stage of bringing in that same permit thing for people to be able to have them because they're being decimated in the wild. Yes. 
So the, they are being exceptionally um, heavily harvested. And mm. it's not only the blue squirrel. There's quite a lot of plants that are very heavily harvested uh, for muti. And then again, when you look at the threatened plants in South Africa, most of them are not threatened through muti collection. Mm. Most of them are threatened through habitat loss. And we've got, I think it's close to 3,000 plants on the red list in South Africa. Um, around about 30 are, mm. are already extinct in South Africa. So, you know, we, we're so worried about big animals with big brown eyes like the rhino and so on. Mm. But uh, we've got plants on our doorstep right here in Gauteng that are, there's only 150 left in the world. That's absolutely crazy. People should really be getting on board with this. I mean, I just didn't think about all the different areas that we've got. I mean, the Richtersveld losing all their quiver trees. And I mean, that's not so much through people going and stealing them or people coming and building houses. I mean, it's just through natural depredation as well. Well, through climate change. uh, Mm, And climate change. Extreme areas, the deserts, hot areas, dry areas, uh, where creatures live on the edge of their existence. You know, they really just mm. just eke out a living. As soon as you change the conditions, make it two degrees hotter, then things just start dying because they're already living on the edge of their of existence. They manage to cling to survival in those mm. rugged, harsh mountains of the Richtersfeld. You up the temperature by two degrees, they just can't. I can't cope anymore. anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody should be coming along to support all the National Botanical Gardens around the country. And I mean, I know that people love coming out to Walter Sisulu of a weekend and you have a lot of tours coming through and stuff like that. Yes. So, as I said, there's the Ohot Forest, there's the grasslands, there's the walk through time, which yes, is an amazing yes. thing. Geological, to do as well. geological walk. Yes. yes. And of course, the people's plants and there's a whole bunch of different succulents there yes. as well as the cycad gardens and of course the waterfall. So, I mean, if people, you know, Apart from going through to Walter Sisulu and actually, I mean, how much does it cost for people to get in? It's not that much. It's 50 rand per person. Okay. And students, obviously, less than OAPs and kids. All the breakdown of the, because there's various Mm. various different rates, and those are all available on our website. But I mean, it's a great afternoon. There's always amazing functions that are taking place and events as well, music stuff under the stars and fates and stuff. But if people want to get involved specifically in helping to conserve the ridges above the gardens, how can they get involved? Well, they can either go to the website of one of the coalition partners. So, for example, the PCA, Proteodel Conservation Association, the Black Eagle Project, Rurikrans, the Botanical Society, our local Botanical Society branch, which is the uh, Bankenfeld branch. Mm-hmm. We've also got Wild Orchids of South Africa who are involved, so they've also got a website. But what we're currently working on is a funding program. We were trying to raise funds in order to support the ridge conservation projects that we're busy with. And uh, there's a crowd funding platform that they've launched mm. uh, Thunder Fund and it's Thunder with a D-A Thunder with okay. a D-A but if you just Google Thunder Fund you'll find it and uh, there's a there's a platform there where people can go and make a donation and you know if everybody just gives 50 rand most people can afford 50 rand. Yeah. Uh, if everybody gave 50 rand we'd easily meet um, our, our funding needs. Okay so I'm challenging everybody to get on board and actually go and save something which is almost losing its grip on earth Okay, so yeah, 50 bucks. What do you think? I've got, I've got my, my producer sitting in the background here, and he's saying yes. He's going to be the first one to put in 50 bucks. All right, I challenge all of you. Let us know. And, uh, of course, if you need to get hold of Sanby or any of them, it's easy enough. Just go online.
Andrew, thank you so much. Um, I mean, I really I hope that doing these pushes for you actually helps us conserve that area. I'm quite happy, once again, as I threatened to do in St. Lucia, go and tie myself to earth-moving equipment because I can do that. <laughs> and we'll, we'll catch up with you again and see how things are going. Thank you very much, Melanie. Uh, thank you very much. And, of course, uh, don't forget you can join us again for the next fabulous podcast coming out on Grounded. We'll catch you again then. Bye-bye. For show notes and more information about this episode, go to solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash grounded.